It's my privilege this morning to uh, begin our Advent teaching series, and uh, we're going to be actually looking through some of the prophets in the Old Testament and seeing uh, what they had to say about Jesus, who wasn't there yet, but they were talking about the Jesus who was to come. So this morning, we're going to focus on Hosea, which um, the, the truth of the matter is that Pastor George at our uh, central campus, my leader, my pastor, our pastor, um, at the beginning of the year said, you know, there's one four-part series. I want us to cover the same topics, the same passages, and the same, uh, you know, the same themes across all of our campuses so that there's some unity in what we teach. Um, and he always loves to select some things for Advent, which is completely fine with me. Um, you know, you sign a, a passage. I don't have to dig in and figure out what it is, uh, which passage I'm supposed to look at this week. I go into this passage and begin to study it and use some of the resources that they send our way to, to try and figure out what I feel like God is saying, uh, was saying to them and saying to us and then for us to say to you. Um, I was really uh, <laughs> intimidated, though, when I saw Hosea was the first week. How many of you have ever read through Hosea at all? It's a bizarre story. <laughs> And it doesn't seem Christmassy at all. In fact, I'm like, oh, the teenagers are in here today. We're really going to have to nuance a few of these things this morning. But um, let's see what he has to say for us this morning. And um, just hold, I would just say this. If you're a little nervous or you know that this is bizarre, it absolutely is bizarre. Um, But be patient with me this morning and we'll see what God has for us. I'm going to read to us. We'll be in Hosea chapter 3. This morning, I'll be reading verses 1 through 5. This is Hosea writing about what God said to him. He says this, Then the Lord said to me, Go and love your wife. Do you see that next word? Again. That already gives you a tip-off as to how bizarre this story really is. Okay, Go and love your wife again, even though she commits adultery with another lover. You uncomfortable yet? Okay. This will illustrate (laughs) poor guy like Hosea this isn't this isn't trying to teach you a lesson about how to be loving or not to divorce I need you to be an illustration for me and here's the way I need you to do it I need you to go to your cheating wife while she's cheating and love her again because I need somebody to be an illustration of here's what he says this will illustrate that the Lord still loves Israel even though the people have turned to other gods and love to worship them. Aren't you glad God didn't call you to be a prophet? (laughs) So, he says, I bought her back. Wow. I bought her back. He didn't just go to her and rekindle the flame. He had to buy her back. For 15 pieces of silver and five bushels of barley and a measure of wine, So all of those in the the house that are excited about wine being in the Bible, there you go. Uh, Then I said to her, you must live in my house for many days and stop your prostitution, which seems reasonable. You'll get that later. During this time, you will not have sexual relations with anyone, not even with me. More bizarre. This shows that Israel will go a long time without a king or a prince and without sacrifices, sacred pillars, priests, or even idols. But afterward, the people will return and devote themselves to the Lord their God and to David's descendant, their king. And in the last days, they will tremble in awe of the Lord and of his goodness. So all of the Hebrew prophets, all of them prophesied, foretold about the Messiah who was yet to come. And Christians, we believe that Messiah came at Christmas. So you have the Old Testament prophets who said there's a Messiah who's coming, and we as Christians believe that it was Jesus 
who actually fulfilled that prophecy and came at Christmas. So in Advent season, like I said, what we're going to do is each of these weeks leading up to Advent, we're going to go to a different one of the prophets in the Old Testament. We won't cover all of them. There's a lot of them. We're going to go to a different one each week, and we're going to see what that particular prophet says to us about the Jesus that was to come, and we're going to kind of gear ourselves up for Jesus to come as it was on Christmas Day. So the one we're looking at today is Hosea. He tells us about the one who is to come, and he uses the illustration of his own messed up marriage. So especially as we, we get into it, you're going to say, this is just strange. This is uncomfortable. Why are you talking about this on a Sunday? Why did they include this in the Bible? There's a reason. Just be, just be patient with us. There's really three things the text teaches us, and, I, and I'll tell you the three of them. You don't have to scroll, you don't have to keep pace with me on the, the screen with all three, but here's the three lessons at once, and I'll go through each one. Um, tells us three things. Number one, our relationship with God is like a marriage. It's the first thing it tells us. Second thing it tells us, and you don't have to go here yet on the screen, but the second thing it tells us is our relationship with God is like a bad marriage. Yay. So our relationship with God is like a marriage. Our relationship with God is like a bad marriage. And the third thing we see is how God healed Hosea's marriage and what it actually cost him to do that. So it's like a marriage. It's like a bad marriage. And we see how God healed Hosea's marriage and what it cost him to do that. So point number one, our relationship with God is like a marriage. The whole book of Hosea, the whole thing, is telling us that our relationship with God is like a marriage. It says we're like the bride... And he is like the bridegroom. Now, for some of us, this is an easier illustration to get than others. If you have been a bride and you're in a good, healthy marriage, this is easy for you to understand. If you're me, it's uncomfortable. I've never been a bride. Don't plan to be a bride. Don't understand how it is to relate to a groom. But I know what it's like to be a groom. And some of you say, I've never had that experience before. I'm still waiting for him or her to come along, or I had that experience and that's not in my life. Well, maybe you can't put yourself in those shoes, but you've probably observed a groom waiting for the bride when she comes around the corner and he sees it for the first time. So at least there's a little bit of analogy you can get here. But the whole point of Hosea, and in fact, it's in Isaiah as well, it's in Ezekiel, it's in Jeremiah, it's right here in Hosea, that God's trying to get through is this. Your relationship, my relationship with God is very much like a marriage, And the theme of the whole book of Hosea is this. You cannot possibly understand your relationship with God and all of its implications if you only understand him as a king and you're his subject. Or if you only see him as your father and you're his son or his daughter. Or you only see him as a shepherd and you're his sheep. All of those other metaphors, they're biblical. They teach us things about God, but they're they're not complete. In fact, the most complete, most accurate illustration we get to understand the relationship between us and God is as him being, you know, it's him being the bridegroom, us being the bride, as Christ being the bridegroom and us being the bride in terms of a, in terms of a marriage. What, what, what Hosea is telling us is that God wants a relationship with us that is so intentional, intensely, personally intimate. And at the same time, it's so enduring and it's so binding that, he, that God is saying to us, you can't possibly understand me or my love for you or our relationship unless you understand me as your husband, as your bridegroom. So that's already a leap for some of us. What do we actually mean 
What do we actually mean? I can't understand my relationship with God unless I understand it's like a marriage. Well, there's a couple things. Uh, marriage is a relationship of priority. It's a relationship of intimacy, and it's a relationship of influence. Marriage is a relationship of priority. If you're married, then your relationship to your spouse and your spouse, him or herself, has to be the number one priority in your life. I mean, it's second only to your relationship with God. That relationship has to be the top priority in your life, second only to God. Nothing, nothing can come before it. I have to explain this to my four-year-old at times who thinks he should be the number one priority in our life. And there are times where I'm trying to have a conversation with his mom or she needs something or she needs my attention and he doesn't understand that well. He thinks that life can be, he can interrupt whenever he wants to. And I've had to get down on one knee and look right in his eyes before and say, son, you're not number one. And after he gets done crying and telling me how mean and insensitive I am, (laughs) I have to say, God is number one and then mommy and then you. And that sounds really nice in those moments, but life gets complex sometimes, doesn't it? I had a family emergency this week on uh, on Monday, I just sat down to uh, sat down to lunch over there in White Marsh on the Avenue with another local pastor. We were having a conversation about um, race and and difficulties and and uh, you know racism and how the church can help. And I needed to hear his voice and perspective to help me fill in some blanks in my own life to help me be a better leader. We had just sat down, and I my phone rings and my wife never calls. And I'm like, I don't know what it is. And as soon as I heard her voice, you've gotten those calls before you. It was DEFCON 10, and, you know, everything was falling apart, and I had, to, I had to rush her to the hospital right away. My son was still in school. You have all these things going on, but you have to clearly establish your priorities. It's like, listen, you know, first number one priority is I'm going to leave my food right here on the table, and I'm going to get to my wife. I'm going to get her to the hospital. I'm going to make sure she's okay. Then I'm going to get my son, work, and all. The, I had premarital counseling scheduled that evening. I had counseling scheduled on Wednesday. I had all these different things stacked up. I had inspections at my house. It all just had to go in the back burner. But if you don't have your priorities established, the crisis of the moment will dictate them to you. And you have to understand that in marriage, that marriage has to be your top priority. Because here's the beautiful thing. If you give your marriage that priority, it'll be healthy. And if you give your marriage that priority, here's what happens. Even though the rest of your life might be completely falling apart, but your marriage is healthy and the priorities are in place, you feel like you can still move about in strength. (laughs) But the opposite is also true. If you don't give your marriage that priority, if you fit it in wherever you can, if you just add it on to everything, your life might be going great on the outside, but you're moving about in weakness because things aren't right at home. And what God is saying to us is that if, if you're going to understand your relationship with me, I have to be your top priority. I have to be involved in every part of your life. You can't just add me on to other things. I'm not just a boost to come through when you're struggling. I'm not just somebody that when all else fails, you can, you can run to me then on 39th on the list. I must be your top priority if our relationship is going to be like a marriage. See, because marriage is unique in its priority. The other thing about marriage is that it's a relationship of intimacy. Um, marriage is the most intimate human relationship in a couple of ways. One is knowledge, because here's the truth. You can hide stuff from your kids about yourself. You can hide stuff from your boss or your coworkers about yourself, and you probably do. You can hide stuff from your pastor. I know you think God tells me everything. He tells me a lot, but not all. You can hide stuff from your spouse. You can hide stuff from your friends. You can even hide things from yourself about yourself. But there's certain things you can't hide from your spouse because your spouse will see them. 
because the relationship is so intimate. It's also unique. Marriage is really unique in its intimacy because of the depths of love and passion. And what God's trying to say to us is that I want a relationship that is like a marriage. You can't know me from afar. I have to be in every centimeter. I have to be in every inch. I have to be in every space. I have to be there. There can't be any part of you you hide from me. I've watched marriages crumble when one spouse tries to hide something from the other. And then it gets discovered. My wife said to me the other day, you seem to get really stressed whenever I'm starting to have contractions and things like that. I'm like, I am. She's like, well, I'm not going to tell you anymore. I was like, no, <laughs> we're not going to get good at hiding things from each other. Let me work through my stress. <laughs> but you've got to be honest with me because I'm here to help you. You can't be any, you're going to have a healthy marriage. You can't get in the habit of hiding things from the other spouse, whether it's the checkbook or the money that's your money that you hide in the can and the thing that you can use for whatever. Listen, <laughs> you don't want to be good at keeping secrets from your spouse and you don't want to be good at trying to keep secrets from God. If you're going to be in a relationship with God, you have to understand it's an all-in relationship. He knows anyway. You're not going to shock him. There's never going to be a day you confess something to God and he'll be like, hold up, angels. Like, I got to sit down for a minute. Like, this is too much to him. Like, he knows. He knows. But if you're going to have a healthy relationship with God, you've got to invite him into every centimeter. And really third, and this is one of the coolest things, the third thing about marriage, you know, our relationship with God being like a marriage is that marriage is a relationship of influence. What do I mean by that? Your spouse has or your spouse someday will have the power to essentially repair or reprogram your self-worth, your self-value, uh, and actually heal you of almost anything. Here's what I mean by that. So let's say, for example, uh, if somebody in the room comes up to me after church and says, you know, Pastor, you are the most compassionate, understanding, patient person I've ever met. I'm going to feel good. I'm going to say, thank you so much for saying that. But you know what I also could say? Fooled you. (laughs) Because, yes, I maybe have cultivated this compassionate, flexible, understanding, patient part of this pastoral demeanor I need to have. But what you don't see is the times I'm really irritable, or I hope you don't. Wow, Tia, you've seen me in those moments. (laughs) You don't see me when I'm irritable. You don't see me when I get bent out of shape, you know, over I'm OCD, and it's like, man, someone moved the pencils on my desk, or someone someone put the mustard where the mayonnaise was supposed to be, and i got to reorganize the refrigerator, and obviously my family's conspiring against me. They know better than to do this. And why do they need to be reorganized? Well, because they just do. You know, the taller ones have to be behind the shorter ones. Labels facing forward. Saves energy. You can see what's in there. We're bonding, some of us, today. <laughs> you don't see me in those moments. I fooled you. <laughs> but you see, if my wife says to me, Phil, you are the most compassionate, patient, understanding person I've ever met. Man, that means something totally different to me. Because she sees me in all those other moments. You see, she has a unique ability to be able to heal me and help me and advocate for me that no one else does. Every spouse has that ability to build up their partner if they choose to use it. But not everybody sees that side of things. If your spouse tells you you're beautiful and everybody else in the world tells you you're ugly, you walk around feeling like you're beautiful. But if everybody in the world tells you you're beautiful... And your spouse just tells you you're ugly. You need to lose weight. You need to change this about you. Everybody else could be telling you you're beautiful, but you know how you feel? You feel ugly. So if that is all the case, if your spouse has this unique ability to influence your life in such a way they can see all of the behind-the-scenes stuff and still speak into your life, 
What is God trying to say about himself when he says, I'm not just like a husband. I'm like a bridegroom. Do you know what he's talking about? He's talking about that moment when the, the groom is usually standing right about here, right? And it's cool being a pastor. I've been with, I saw Lincoln and Leanna walk in. I stood next to Lincoln. I stood next to Keith Dixon when he saw his, his bride come down the aisle. I stood next to Jared. I stood next to Jonathan Epperson. I've stood next to a lot of you, a lot of the grooms when they're waiting for their bride. And every experience is different. But you know, you see that moment when the groom sees his bride on the wedding day, right? I remember all of those moments. I remember being with Lincoln before he got married, just back there with his fellows, and he was just as happy as I've ever seen him. He was so ready to give his life to Leanna. I remember being with Jared, same way. He was just so ready to get married. I remember being with Jonathan and just seeing him overcome with emotion when he saw Tawny getting ready to come down, uh, getting ready to come down the aisle. I remember Keith Dixon, who I, you know, I don't see a lot of emotion out of Keith, but he came apart that morning when he was giving his life. <laughs> Sorry, buddy, I didn't mean to embarrass you, but Tammy, I'll tell that story all day long. <laughs> I mean, he, he, I remember you, you went, ah, like this, like you were trying to snap yourself out of it. It didn't work, but it was funny. Um, but you know that moment when the, when the groom sees the bride turn the corner? What's he thinking at that moment? His heart's beating out of his chest. He wants to run down the aisle and pick her up, and it would ruin the ceremony, so they don't. But I mean, he wants to, he wants to run down. He's, what's he getting ready to do? He's ready to pledge his whole life away. I'll give you everything I have. And the bride's like, I'll take it. It's awesome. This is good. No, I'm just... <laughs> He's, he sees her in all of her glory and all of her radiance, and he cannot wait to share with her everything that he is, to give her everything that he has. When Jesus says to us, when God says, Jesus is like the bridegroom, what he's saying is the most beautiful moments and the most amazing ceremonies you've ever seen where the groom is waiting for his bride are just a hint of how Jesus feels when he looks at you. And you can't possibly understand the depth of his love for you his grace over you or his grief when we walk away from him because that's how he feels about us. So, you know, first of all, our relationship with God is, it's like a marriage. It's like a marriage. But secondly, our relationship with God is like a bad marriage, (laughs) point two. So now that the warm fuzzies are over, let's look at exactly what's going on in this story. In verse one, of this chapter, the Lord, the Lord says to Hosea, go and love your wife. And what was that word we attached? Go and love your wife again, even though she commits adultery with another lover. So here's what's happening. The word again means this is not the first time God has said this command to Hosea. He's referring back to chapter one, the very beginning of Hosea, which you, many of you have read. You can go back and read it again today, which also starts with God saying to Hosea, go. God does something with Hosea that on the one hand is pretty normal. On the other hand, it's very unusual and actually kind of startling. So uh, on the one hand, he says to Hosea, you see this woman, Gomer? She's the one for you. This is the woman you're to marry. And that's not unusual. Hosea is a prophet. You know what prophets do? They hear voices out loud from God. They get revelations. God speaks to them. That's their job. They hear God speak, they get revelations, and then they preach and they prophesy and they tell people. That's what a prophet does. So God's speaking out loud to Hosea and saying, you see that one over there, Gomer? Go marry her. Go take her to be your wife. The next thing that God says in chapter one is the startling part. He says, because you see that woman there, go take her to yourself, this adulterous wife, 
because all of Israel is also guilty of being adulterous and departing from the Lord. He's saying, I need someone to be an illustration. I need somebody to understand what I'm going through, says God. God says, I'm in a marriage, and the marriage that I'm in is with my people. But it's a bad marriage because the wife that I took to be my own is sleeping with other lovers. And you'll never understand that, Hosea, unless you go through the same thing. So here's what I'm assigning you to do. You go marry Gomer, fall in love with her, marry her, and she's going to trample your heart. And she's going to betray you. And she's going to be unfaithful to you. But I need someone to be an illustration. And I need someone to understand me. In other words, he's saying, Hosea, you can't really truly be my prophet until you really totally understand me. I'm going to need you to represent me accurately to people. And how can you speak on my behalf if you've never walked a mile in my shoes? This is really, really hard stuff. And he says to Hosea, you go take Gomer to be your wife. You fall in love with her. You give yourself to her but she's going to trample your heart. She's going to cheat on you. She's going to betray you in the very same way that my bride has cheated on me. This is what he says. So um, story gets worse. Uh, He actually does go and marry Gomer. There's two reasons why. One was because um, God wanted to redeem and help Gomer and he needed to get someone in her life that had the energy to do it. And so he's got Hosea there. But the bigger reason is because he says, you're a prophet, Hosea, and it's your job to understand me and know who I am so you can communicate to other people and bring the knowledge of God in their lives and change them. So we're told in chapter one, he does go and he marries her and they have three kids and we could spend several weeks talking about the children. Um, we get a hint from what was going on in their marriage by the, what, the names he gave them, if you go back and read them. Um, you know, she had three children, two sons and a daughter. He named the third child Lo-Ami. Do you know what that means? Not mine. This is what's going on. How would you like to grow up with your name reminding you that, though, <laughs> that your dad wasn't really your father? So that's what's going on. Um, what actually happened was that Gomer immediately began to be unfaithful to Hosea. And then after that, she left him. And the Bible tells us in chapter 2, she moved in with a lover. And then she went with other lovers. And I'm trying to sanitize this as best I can. And eventually it got worse and worse. In chapter 2, um, in chapter two she became a prostitute. And it got, it got worse. So in chapter 2, she goes back to being a prostitute. And things are worse and worse and worse and worse. And then in chapter 3, it got even worse. You say, how much worse could it get? Chapter 3, now she's for sale. There's a couple ways this could happen. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly how. Um, but it does tell us she's still kind of connected to someone who is her lover. And it's possible that he puts her up for sale because uh, one of the ways you could get sold into slavery in that day and age was if you ran up debt. And if you ran up debt you couldn't pay, you could be put up for sale. Uh, another possibility, um, again, trying to think carefully, maybe you'll get this. She had possibly lost her marketability and was no longer um, financially profitable for whoever was being her manager. And so to cut his, his losses... <laughs> He puts her up for uh, auction. Regardless of how you put it, this is bad, right? (laughs) This is bad. This is as far down as someone could fall. So that's what happens at the beginning of chapter 3. So Hosea is in a really bad marriage. And here's what God says. This is an image, a metaphor of what my relationship with human beings is like. 
because he says, I need you, Hosea, to go love a woman who's loved by another man and is a cheater. Even as the Lord loves his people, the children of Israel, even though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisin. And I know you might think raisin cakes, that doesn't sound so bad. Raisin cakes were the delicacies that they served at idol feasts. So what he's saying is I'm trying to love somebody who has an appetite for somebody else. But they're still married to me. (laughs) How God's trying to describe the relationship. So what God is saying is your bad marriage is exactly what happens when I love my people and they put other things in front of me. It's exactly what happens. Another thing we're learning is that um, (laughs) when the person you love most in your life is putting him or herself in the arms of another lover, there's almost no experience like that. Sadly, I know some of you probably know what that experience is like or you know somebody who's gone through that experience. And until you've been through that or you know somebody who's been through that, you can't fully understand the impact of our sin and our coldness towards God. Because every time you and I sin, we choose to put ourselves into the arms of something else. That's not God. And he's trying to help Hosea and us understand through Hosea's bad marriage how that really feels. If you don't love somebody, that doesn't bother you. But the more you love, the more you can hurt. This is what God's trying to show us through Hosea. Another thing that we see, and I'll just say this briefly, then we'll move on to point three and close. He's saying to us, you don't really understand yourself. When you read about Gomer in chapter two, and I'm trying to be very delicate in how I say this, let's say it this way. She's totally out of control, isn't she? She can't stop herself. She's an addict of types. She keeps thinking that if she gets enough of whatever was filling the vacuum in her life, that at some point it'll pull her out. When really it just drags her farther and farther and farther and farther down into this. And what we can see here is that If you make anything more important than God, your career, your money, a good cause, your family, being married, trying to be married, you're doing the same thing with your soul that a sex addict does with their body. You're putting yourself into the arms of something and you have to have it. And you think that thing will die for you and that thing, but it won't, your career won't die for you. There's only one person who ever died for you. And God says, until you understand the absolute devastation of having the person you love most betray you, be unfaithful to you, you don't understand how I feel about your waywardness. You don't understand how I feel about your coldness. You don't understand how I feel when, when you, can't even, you can't even worship me or you can't even pray or you can't even talk to me. You can never understand that until you've gone through this experience. You don't even understand your own heart and how addicted and enslaved you are to, to other things besides me, that can never save you, only drive you into the ground. So what happens next? Point three, last point. How God healed Hosea's marriage and what it cost him. Chapter three, verse one, we've said it several times. The Lord says to Hosea, go again. She's left him. She's been a prostitute. She's up for sale now. God says, go again. Here's what God's saying. You have a thousand reasons for a divorce because they're still married. He says, you have a thousand reasons for a divorce. I want you to go get her anyway. Don't divorce her. Go get her. Now, I can already hear the wheels turning. Some people are making a mistake right away and saying, is this passage trying to say there's no such thing as grounds for divorce? No, that's not what this passage is saying. Hosea would would be so angry with you 
if you took everything he was trying to show you and you thought that he was making a message about divorce. This is not about divorce. There's other biblical passages that talk about biblical grounds for divorce. We've talked about those from from the pulpit. This is not a passage about love. This is not a passage about divorce. This is not a passage about being a good husband. This is not what Hosea wanted. This is not the script he wrote for his life. It's not like he was the one begging God for permission to take Gomer back. God says to him, you're my prophet, go get her again. The only reason Hosea is going through this is to point to God, to make his life a living arrow, to point you and me to God and to salvation and to show you who God is and how beautiful salvation is. He's not just an inspiring example. The whole point of Hosea is not love conquers all. The point of Hosea is God conquers all. That's the point of this book. God says, let's go show the world what I'm like, Hosea. Let's do this together. Let's go get her. And he does. And so you see in verse 2, he says, so I bought her. Do you know what that means? He bought her? Yes, dynamic. But let me go a little bit deeper than that. From what we can tell at this point in the story, Israel is in about the 8th century B.C., Okay, it's about the time period of Hosea and Amos when they were prophesying. And Israel at this point is dead spiritually. They decayed spiritually, they decayed culturally. They had adopted many of the traditions of other pagan countries, which included having live auctions for women who had fallen into debt or people who were being auctioned out of the sex trade. And so there's a good chance that what's taking place with Gomer to buy her back was a public auction. And we know from historians what this was like. Gomer, I'll be as decent as I can about this, Gomer would have been brought forward in front of a bunch of men, and what kind of man would come out to pay for someone in her situation in life, right? Not the high people of society, right? They would have stripped her naked because, just say it, they had to strip her naked because in that day and age, they wanted to see what they were bidding on, what they were getting for their money. So that's what would have happened, and most women would cover their eyes because they felt so degraded for what was going on here, and they would have heard the voices of the men bidding for them. And can you imagine Gomer in that situation, covering her eyes and hearing bidding, but there's one voice she recognizes, and that bid tends to be the highest bid, pushing that bid forward, and she recognizes that voice as her husband that she left. She knows Hosea's voice. And she hears him bidding for her. And he drives the bidding the whole way up to to 15 shekels and a certain amount of this and that. If you add it all together, it's about 30 shekels, which is the typical going price at that time to to, to purchase another human being. It's just so uncomfortable to talk about. It's an awful part of history. Um, But Hosea wins the auction. And he would have had to take his own coat and cover her up and lead her away. And what do you think she's thinking at this time? Why, after all that I've done to him, would he buy me back? What is he going to do with me? He's probably going to get revenge. Now he can do with me whatever he wants. He's probably going to take me home and fill in the blanks. But he doesn't do that. He buys her. He covers her and he takes her home and he talks gently to her. And he actually kind of says three things to her. Number one, he says, I don't want you to be my slave. I want you to be my wife. I want us to have a home. I want us to be together. I want us to rebuild our life together. But number two, he says, but we're not just going to jump back into bed together. We got some things we need to work out. 
You're not going to sleep with me. You're not going to sleep with anybody else for a period of time. We need to go back through this because if we're really going to make this work, we've got to do some hard emotional work here. You understand how difficult those conversations must have been? (laughs) But the third thing he says is that at the end of that, he doesn't say, you'll be mine. He says, I'll be yours. I'll be yours again. So you see what Hosea had to do. He had to pay a tremendous price. It was an enormous cost that he had to pay to rebuild this relationship. Obviously, there was a financial cost. You can see how much he had to spend out of his own pocket to bring this back. There was a social cost. Can you imagine what all Hosea's friends said to Hosea about this? Really? What would you say to your friend who has someone who's cheated on them over and over and over and over and over and over and over again and say, but I just love them? Some of you have tried to talk sense into somebody in those seasons of life. And it's like, listen, man, fool me once, but fool me, come on now. <laughs> Best indication of future behavior is past behavior. I'm not in the business of telling people in a, in an, with a spouse or in a relationship where there's been infidelity after infidelity after infidelity, you know what, just take them back. Things will be different this time. That's not even wise. He, he's a prophet trying to have good, he needs to be the wise person that people look up to and listen to. And here he is buying back his wife who is a prostitute, sold into slavery, who cheated on him publicly over and over and over and over again. So he paid a financial price. He paid a, a, a cultural price, a social price. But you know what he also paid? He paid an emotional price. He paid a deep emotional price. He's saying, I've been hurt. I can't just climb back into bed with you. We've got a lot of work to do, but I'm going to pay the price, so eventually I shall be yours. Here's the conclusion. The whole idea of this whole book is that Hosea is supposed to be an image, an imperfect one, but an image of God, a metaphor for God himself. Hosea was in love. God is in love. Hosea had been betrayed. God has been betrayed. Hosea pays an enormous price to get Gomer back. God pays. This is the Old Testament, though, right? Had Jesus come yet? No. So if you're in this time period and you're saying, okay, I'm tracking along with the metaphor, but it breaks down. God, you told me to go down and to pay for her out of my own pocket and to cover her with my own coat and to lead her away. I see the part where you're married, I'm married, I'm betrayed, you're betrayed, but I paid a price. When has God ever paid a price at the time that Hosea is writing? This is where verses four and five come in. This is now the arrow. This is the solution to the riddle. This is where God says to Hosea, you're showing an example of what I'm going to do a short time from now through my son, Jesus Christ. You can read the, the end of the story. It, it tells that there's going to be a time in the future where Israel will be the adulterous wife who comes back. If you read verses 4 and 5, it says, she'll return and she will worship and serve the king who will be a descendant of David. Well, at the time, they had no idea what that meant, but you and I get the benefit of knowing, don't we? Who is he talking about? He's talking about the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And he's saying, Hosea is an image, a metaphor to explain how I, God, will enter the marketplace. And I will enter the marketplace through the sending of my son, Jesus Christ. Because what you have to understand is that anytime you love a weak person, anytime you love a broken person, you have to make something called a substitutionary sacrifice. Here's what that means. Say you got a friend, you got a girlfriend, 
and she calls you one day and she is sobbing and she is crying and she's at a low point and she just needs somebody to talk to. She needs someone to come over and listen to her and, and, and just talk her through, talk her off the ledge as it were. And here's what you know. If I stay disconnected, I can still go home and watch Gilmore Girls tonight. Or I can get invested. And there goes my evening. There goes my, my night on my own of unwinding. This is going to be stressful. It's going to take away from me. And at the end of the conversation, she's going to feel better and I'm going to feel drained. But you know what the reality is? It's her or you. You let her sink or you jump in there and you help. And most of us, when we love a weak person in their time of weakness, we jump in and here's what I want you to see. You can't ever, ever love somebody through weakness without part of their weakness falling on you and part of your strength going out to them. I promise every relationship of value in your life has an ebb and flow of those things. Now, some of us have those relationships where it always seems to flow one way. <laughs> Call those EGRs, extra grace required people. They seem to be always the ones that need, they always have a crisis. They always need you to drop everything. You're always there for them, but the door doesn't swing both ways. We all have people like that. I know none of you are like that, okay? No pointing, no elbowing, all right? But the reality is if you make a commitment to love someone through weakness, there will always be times where you have to let some of your strength flow into them, some of their weakness flows into you. This is the example that, Hosea's setting, he let an enormous amount of strength flow out of him into Gomer. And so much of her weakness came to him. He loves and he shows that it costs. But here's the answer to all the riddles. In Jesus Christ, God entered the world. He entered the marketplace. He clothed us like Hosea clothed Gomer. He took off his righteousness and he covered our nakedness and our brokenness. He took off his glory and covered up our shame. And when he hung on the cross, he died and he paid the price to buy us back from all of our sin, from all of our enslavements, from all of our disease and our brokenness. So when God actually has the audacity to say, in Jesus Christ, I entered the marketplace. I laid down my life for you. I did the thing that you have to do every time you try and love somebody with needs. I made a substitutionary sacrifice. Your sin, your evil, your problems came on to me so that my righteousness could be put on you. Amen. Isn't that such good news? Isn't that such good news? Do you understand that, God's saying? And if you can understand that now, you begin to know how much I love you. So three probing questions for you to reflect on as I walk down off of here and spill the water everywhere. It's just water. It's just water. No electric involved. Forgot that was on there. Invite the worship team to come back up and stand in the puddle. (laughs) Three probing questions. First, are you suffering Are you suffering today? Is everything in your life going wrong right now? When I I was going through these three questions, I was like, well, yep, number one is me right now. (laughs) That's where I find myself today. Not every day, but, you know, I I don't know how your week was. Mine was (laughs) dramatic and stressful. Is everything going wrong in your life? Hosea could probably say, everything's going wrong in my life. Gomer probably said, almost everything's going wrong in my life. Maybe God's trying to make you into a prophet. Maybe he's trying to make you into somebody that can speak into other people's lives. That's how he did it in Hosea. And he can still redeem our mess. 
make it into a message. Second, are you unmarried and really afraid of getting married? Or are you unmarried and really incredibly upset because you're not? In other words, are you under-wanting marriage or over-wanting marriage? Jesus Christ would look at you today and say, until you realize I'm the only bridegroom, I'm the only spouse who will really satisfy the deepest recesses of your heart, you're going to continue to underwant or overwant marriage. Not only that, but if you're married and you don't have Jesus' spousal love in your heart, you're going to be a lousy spouse. Because either, either you're going to look to your spouse to fulfill every emotional, physical, social, moral need in your life, which is unrealistic, or you're just going to be cynical. The reality is, until you have Jesus' love in your life, you'll be poorly married or poorly unmarried. And finally, do you really have Jesus in your life as your spouse? Or is he just kind of a boss, kind of a landlord, kind of a figurehead that's up there? If you want to experience his love in your life, you want to have that type of intimacy, that type of power. And what you have to do is make your vow to him or remake your vow to him. So let's pray together this morning. I want to give you an opportunity to say yes to Jesus, to, to make that vow to him or to remake a vow if you're drifting. So I would invite anyone here today who would love to commit their life to Jesus, who would like to take him up on his offer to, to be in covenant with you for you to be his and his, him to be yours, to make, a, to make a vow, to make a commitment out of your heart. It's a simple prayer that I'm going to lead out in prayer. And if you, if you want to take that step today, if you've just felt through this message and through the Bible and through the worship today that, man, I don't understand all the theology, but I feel like God's calling out to me today and I, I feel my heart thumping through my chest and I just feel like this is what I've been missing in my life. This is the thing that I don't have. And friend, all you have to do to confess with your mouth that Jesus is in fact the Lord, that he's the Son of God. And you have to believe, be completely convinced in your heart that what the Bible says about his resurrection is true, that he was raised again from the dead. And if that's what you bring to him today, you will be gloriously and marvelously saved and transformed. That begins for all of us with a pledge, a commitment, a prayer. Here's what that's like. I'll pray an example prayer, and I'll pause after each sentence and give you a chance, if you want to pray this along with me today, to whisper this prayer to God for yourself this morning. Pray just like this. Dear Jesus, I believe you're the Son of God. I believe you lived a sinless life. I believe you died on the cross in my place. I believe you rose from the dead and you're alive today. And I believe you love me. Thank you for forgiving me of my sins. I accept your forgiveness today. Now I commit my life to you. I stand down from the throne of my life. And I invite you to sit there. And be my king. Be my shepherd. Be my father. Be my bridegroom. Thank you for saving me. Amen.